So we are going to be in Acts chapter 19. Verses 21 through 41. I want to um, read the passage all at once. And then I'm just going to pray for our time. And we will, we will dive in. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried about one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would help us to understand it. That you would help us to love what we see here in our understanding and that you would give us wisdom in how to obey what we see and how to live out these glorious truths. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to be faithful my words and help us to be faithful in our hearing to the glory of the Father in the name of the Son and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So one of the things that I realized um, that I have realized in doing um, kind of a uh, an autopsy if it were as it were on some of my sermons uh, we noticed when I was over in Ethiopia, when I preached, um, I had to preach through a translator. And normally they say that preaching through a translator will double the time of your sermon, right? Because I have to say it, and then they have to translate it. And so as you can imagine, that could be make for a very long service um, if I'm preaching. And so what happened, though, was I preached a sermon, and it was actually a sermon that I had preached here before. And when I preached it here, it was probably around... 
45 minutes, something like that. And when I preached it in this Ethiopian church through a translator, it was 34 minutes. And I, I'm not sure, but I asked my son, so I got to take Silas with me, which was a great gift. And I asked Silas, I said, what, what did you think? And he goes, Dad, that was different. And I said, why? He goes, you were very to the point. <laughs> and I, so I realized that, yes, part of my issue is the long rambling intros and other places, but the intros for sure. And so I thought, okay, how do I make this concise in the introduction so I can jump into what we came here to talk about? And here's how. That big narrative passage that I um, summed up, that, that, I, that the big intro, the big thing that I want to get across today, that the main point is this. The gospel is disruptive. I could give you a lot of illustrations and I could make this intro be 10 or 15 minutes long, but I'm just going to say this. The gospel is disruptive. It's its nature. There are, the kingdom of God is colliding with the kingdom of the world. And when two kingdoms collide, there is disruption. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The coming of the kingdom of God is extreme, and it is disruptive. And what I want to look at today is, is why is that the case, and how is that good news for us? And then what do we do in the midst of, of the kind of the mob mentality in which we find ourselves in our own culture and what Paul found himself here? Those are hard sayings that Jesus just made. Those are hard things for us and we, we wrestle with them and we think like, okay, well, he doesn't mean we're supposed to hate our mother and our father. Like that's not a license. Like you could look at that and as a teenager and be like, yes, finally, that's exactly what I've been saying. But no, that's not what he's actually driving at here. And we can qualify in all kinds of ways, but here's the big idea. The gospel is disruptive. It will not exist peacefully with the world. The world in our culture or the world in our flesh? There's a collision. And that is good news and bad news. Okay? So there's good news and bad news. The good news is that the gospel will disrupt the culture. And the bad news is the gospel will disrupt the culture. And we will fight both of those. So through this, I want you to see how this is both. There are times where we're like, yes, the gospel will disrupt the culture. And other times we're like, ah, I don't want the gospel to disrupt my culture. And both of those will collide. So first I want just to address that, that bad news, that the gospel is disruptive. The, the difficult part of that for us. And that is this. You can't find a form of Christianity that will not be disruptive. Now I'm going to ask, show of hands. You don't have to if you don't want to. I'm not, not going to force you to do that. But show of hands, how many of you would say, eh, you know, one of my issues is I'm kind of a people pleaser. I just like everything to just be peaceful and like no problem, no waves, right? Here's what I love about that. I can ask you to show your hands and you will because you don't want to let me down, right? <laughs> So now when I say, how many of you are confrontational people, you're only going to raise your hand depending on whether you think oh, that's what I really want you to do or not. Right. Like if you're going to, you're, you're, some of you will be like, I don't have to tell you. I don't have to raise my hand. And other of you are like, I'm going to prove your point and I'm going to do this. So whatever the case is, like we have these different personalities. But all of us at some point try to make the gospel play nicely with the parts of culture that we want it to play nicely with. With the parts of our heart and our sin that we want it to play nicely with. We just don't want to rock the boat. And some of us are more inclined to that than others. 
We just want everyone to get along. We want to believe that we can make peace. And what we have here in this is a riot and a a mob. And so in that context, some of us try to figure out, how can I make peace with the mob? How can I present Christianity in a way that no one will find it disruptive or offensive? We see this in the world. The world tries to convince us that that's okay. So as the world is fighting their battle against one another, as Christians, we're reminded by Paul that our war, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual powers and principalities of the darkness. Like, it is, this is our war. We're battling things up here, and then, but the world is battling its own battles here, and we get dragged into it. And every time we get dragged into it, the gospel gets kind of morphed and, and, and kind of um, compromised in a way to fit into that. Because we get motivated by thinking, okay, no, we can get this to fit in. We see this right now, like we see this with political parties obviously trying to corner Christianity and shape it into something that fits with them. And it won't. The gospel will be disruptive. It's tempting to want to just stress the sides of Christianity that others in our camp will appreciate, but that will always lead to the temptation to water down the gospel. So we'll want to convince the mob that we believe in justice and we'll end up on the side of injustice. We want to convince the mob that we believe in freedom and so we will end up with an unbiblical definition of freedom. We want to convince the the mob that we are accepting and so we will dishonor God by not trusting his word. We want to convince the mob that we are strong and so we will speak truth apart from the love of Christ and disobey Jesus. This happened in the early church all the time. This has been a consistent battle within the church. The idea that, no, no, we can make Christianity fit so that it's not disruptive to our lives. It happened in the early church in trying to appease um, the Judaizers and people who said um, that, no, no, you need to believe in Jesus and follow the law. And so there were many Christians who said, yeah, what's the harm in that? Like if we just, if we just say, yes, also get circumcised. Yes, also follow dietary laws. Yes, also do these things. Like what harm does that really do? And then, and then we'll bring peace here. Then it'll, it'll get along. We'll, we'll all get along okay. But it was... It was dishonoring the gospel. It happened not only in the early church, it happened during the Crusades when the pursuit of of justice and wanting to protect their own families, the church dishonored Jesus through the slaughtering of many people. It happened in Nazi Germany when most Christians supported the Nazi party in the pursuit of making their country a better place. They ignored the marginalized and ultimately were complicit in the murder of millions of people. It happened in our own country in the 1960s when evangelical churches fought hard against civil rights and committed or hid horrifying crimes. And it happens today. This has been a consistent, constant battle. When the church tries to say the gospel doesn't have to be offensive. We can make it live peacefully, peacefully with the mob. Then we compromise our message and our mission to the detriment of the world. But more importantly, we commit adultery. We choose the temporary love of the world over the abiding eternal love of our groom, Jesus Christ. I want to say this thing, and I just want to set it out there, and whatever it, whatever it brings, it brings. But if you see whatever, whatever camp in our world you are a part of, if you see your side and your camp as the good guys and the other as the bad guys, then I would submit that you have bought into this mob mentality. And what you are doing is committing adultery. And let me tell you, it does not matter how similar you think your mistress is to your spouse. It's still adultery. I know this is a harsh image, but imagine that I said to my wife, 
You know, I, I, yes, I have committed adultery, but I had the choice of two mistresses and I picked the mistress that was most like you. Yeah, that's not gonna fly. And yet I see it in the church where we say, we say, well, no, no, I know, I know that I'm compromising in this way. I know I don't, this doesn't look like Jesus. I know that I'm not like really pursuing Christ. I know this isn't bearing the fruit of the Spirit. I, I know, I know, but, but I, have, I have to choose between two mistresses and I picked, I picked the one that looked most like you, Jesus. It's still adultery. The gospel is disruptive. And if we would want to remain pure in the gospel, then we must understand that we cannot compromise our message. We cannot disobey our king. We cannot be unfaithful to Christ. And it will, at some point, frustrate and upset people that you see as in agreement with you. You cannot avoid it. The gospel is disruptive. And that is good news. Here's how it's good news. Because who doesn't look around at our culture right now and wish that we could influence it? Wish that we could change it? Think of the things in our culture right now that you wish, if you could, if you could just change something right now, something that you have grieved over, something that you have worried about, something that you have prayed for, something that you're concerned about for your children and for your grandchildren. Like, what would it be? And I'm not talking about our own personal comfort. I think we get to a place on, on, on Sunday mornings when we're all here together, we understand that our main pursuit should not be my own personal comfort. But even for the good of our neighbors, like what is it? Maybe it's the protection of the unborn or the protection of young children being used for political agendas or the care of refugees, or a healthy and peaceful move toward racial reconciliation, or decreased crime, or better better medical care and schools, or strengthening of families, or a stronger economy. The good news is that nothing in the history of the world has affected more positive change in those areas and more than the spread of the gospel. From the first hospitals, to the end of slavery, to the idea that all men are created equal, to the concept that all children are worthy of being educated and valued, and that all people are worthy of being cared for. All of this flowed out of the spread of the gospel. So what gives? What's the difference between those things that we just mentioned and the things we mentioned previously, like the Crusades? What's the difference between the church affecting incredible change that has benefited our neighbors and the church doing some of the most destructive and evil things that the world has seen? What's well, found in how the gospel disrupts the culture? So the gospel disrupts the culture. And that's bad news when we want it to play nicely with our own sin and with other people's and with culture that we want to be a part of and that serves our needs. And it's good news when we know that it can impact and affect things that we desperately care about and want to see changed in the culture. But how it disrupts the culture is critical. Notice those making money from Artemis, from, from the sales, what the problem that was going on here is that the, those who are making these idols were not making as much money because the Christians stopped buying these idols. The Christians, as they came to Christ and they realized, like, oh, okay, I, don't, I should not be worshiping idols. I need to worship God. And so, therefore, I'm not going to be giving money to this. I'm not going to be buying these idols. And so that was hurting their business. But what we don't see is we don't see the early church um, picketing the idol factories trying to drive them out. We don't see them going and, and these big marches on, on these um, idol factories and, and declaring that these are idols and they're evil. What we see is that Christians, in changing their lives, and the gospel transforming them and changing their lives, they are disrupting culture by simply living in faithful obedience to Jesus. And as they do that, it changes the world around them. And the point is this. The kingdom of God is subversive. 
We've talked many times about the traits of the kingdom, and one of them is it works inside out. We keep saying it, hoping that we'll, we'll get on board with this, that the kingdom of God manifests itself from the inside out. The most important thing we can do for our culture is to share the gospel and to grow in Christ-likeness, to change from the inside out. And as that happens, as I'm changed, we are changed, the culture is disrupted. Now the difficult news in that is that it will disrupt both the things we want to change and the things we don't want to change. It disrupts our comfort. It will disrupt our self-centeredness, our individualism. It makes us listen when people point out our blind spots. It means caring about things that the world says that are, that are an opposite. It means caring about things that the world says are opposite to the political agendas that we're supposed to be about. It means being willing to look at myself and change things about how I think and how I live in obedience to Jesus Christ through his word. It means confronting things in our culture that are sinful, that have become normal to us. It means helping one another fight against the sin that so easily entangles us. In short, it means we continue to be radically transformed as followers of Jesus, which in turn radically transforms this body of Christ, like our church, Faith Church, which will in turn radically transform our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our families, our community. I'm seeing it right now. We're seeing it. As you are buying into this, you, I'm seeing people that you are being changed and it is changing where you work, where you go to school, where you, like the leagues of like youth sports teams and all kinds of things. I'm seeing the fingerprints of the image of God all over this place. And it is really incredible. That is how the kingdom affects culture. That is how the gospel disrupts the culture and brings about change that is God-honoring, that looks like the kingdom. It does not come through fighting the mob head-on. Like, fighting the mob head-on, that's where we get into the situation of compromising the gospel, and it never fails. And this is, this is why. Because when you get into one of those battles with a mob, and we're going to talk about like what that mob mentality is, but when you get into that battle, you realize, I can't fight this mob without another mob. Because only mobs can fight against mobs. I know this is going to get confusing, but that's okay. Like we end up looking at it and we say, well, we got to defeat this mob. And the only thing that can defeat this mob is this other mob. And so I'm going to make friends and make peace with this other mob and kind of compromise things so that together we can defeat that mob. And that mob is the actual problem. And in that, we end up compromising the gospel and we've just created a different mob. We think that this mob is better than that mob. And that is how you get the Crusades in Nazi Germany and our reaction to civil rights. Every time it was when the church got dragged into the mob mentality and said, I have to defeat that mob, so I'm going to make peace with this mob, and that will serve a greater good. And it is adultery. And it is not trusting in Christ. And the church has tried to take refuge in a mob rather than than in the way of Jesus. So what do we do then? I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture is prone to mob mentality, right? So what do we do? Like, how do we just sit there and be like, okay, have fun, mobs. I'll just be hanging out over here until Jesus comes. Jesus, you're coming, right? And we... We see people in the church do that. Like, they're just so fed up with the world around us, so fed up with all that, we're just like, start saying, okay, Jesus is coming like next Tuesday. It's happening. And so we just all, like, every generation has that. It kind of comes from this idea of like, I know I can't compromise the gospel. I don't know what to do with that. So I'm just going to withdraw and just trust that Jesus is coming back, like now. But there's another way of dealing with this. There's a way to live in the culture, and we see it here in Acts how to deal with it. Like, first off, we just have to understand that we all buy into mob mentality. This isn't their problem. It's our problem. 
We love the mob when it's in our favor, and we hate it when it's not. Have you ever, like, cheered for a sports team, and, um, and then, like, your rivals have a guy that is just, you just hate, right? Like, I was trying to think of an example, and I thought, like, a Bears quarterback, but there's never been a good one, so I don't know how to, like, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's hard to, like, I'm trying to think. Like, so imagine if the Bears had a good quarterback. Like, imagine that the, the Packers fans are like, oh, but there's always that guy on the other team that kind of, like, gets at everybody, talks trash, kind of a bully or whatever, and when he's on the other team, you hate him. Like, that guy's a jerk. How can anybody, that's why I don't like that team, because they support players like that. And then that guy gets traded to your team, He's tough. He's great. I mean, I'm just glad. Like, yeah, I mean, like, hey, you know what? He just, he doesn't, he doesn't take anything from anybody. He's willing to stand up or whatever. Like, it changes our whole mentality when we see them on our side. And so we first have to understand we are all predisposed to do this. We all buy into it. We all love the mob when the mob, when we agree with the mob. When we think they're defeating another mob, they're like, yeah, that's our mob. And we don't like it when it's against us. And here's some things that we learned from this passage about this mob mentality. We have to recognize that and pull ourselves out from it and say, that is not where Christians belong. And we learned some things from this passage about this, this mob mentality that we can notice, notice. One of them is what the leaders of the mob say is the problem isn't actually the problem. What they say is what they say they're about isn't actually what they're about. When you look at Acts um, 19, 27, it says when, when he's speaking about this, he says there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Let me ask you something. Is his concern Artemis or money? It's money. Like the concern is, hey, we're not going to be making enough money. And, and oh, like, by the way, that's really the big problem is that Artemis will be deposed and like will no longer be worshipped in her magnificence. People who spark mobs always have ulterior motives. They see the mob as a pawn to get what they really want. And they will manipulate and use you. I mean, right now we're in political season, so just watch every political ad. How ridiculous. Doug Smith hates puppies. He hates puppies? Why would you hate puppies? I can't vote for a guy who hates puppies. Like, it's constant. They're all founded on this principle. Not a single one of those ads cares about the voter. They only care about the mob techniques to manipulate you into doing what they think is the right thing to do. Period. That's the goal. So just be mindful of that. Secondly, we see... This is one of my favorite things. Most people don't know what they're yelling about in the mob. Like, how great is this? Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, or Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. I could give an Anchorman reference right now for like the 15 of you who will, uh, or for like the 35 of you who have seen the movie and the 15 of you who will admit that you've seen the movie. Um, but there's a scene where the guy, like everyone's up in a frenzy and everybody and one of the characters comes in and he's like, they're all yelling all these different things. And then one guy comes in, he's like, I don't know what we're yelling about. That is the mob. We don't know what we're even yelling about. And that means a couple of things. It's really important. Number one, it's why you can't reason with people in a mob mentality because they don't even know. Like, we don't even know what we're upset about when we're in it. But the other thing it should remind you of is that the person in the mob is not your enemy. 
They are not making a stance against you. They are swept up like all of us get swept up in a kind of mob mentality way of thinking. And we're not really sure which way is up. It is confusion. And when we look at people who are confused and we make them our enemy, we are not like Christ. Notice how Jesus speaks to people who opposed the gospel. The, old, the ones he treated with, with when their anger comes out or harshness, it is with the leaders of the mobs. Never the people caught up, swept up in the mob. It's the people who know what they're doing that he would confront, who are putting a stumbling block before God. But the rest of the people, he had compassion and understanding and grace. And then the third one is they can't be reasoned with. Look in verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward. Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, in other words, when they recognized he wasn't one of them, what do they do? For two hours, they drown him out with chants of great as Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, it's like a live Facebook thread. It's unreal. Have you ever tried to get in the middle of a Facebook thread? God bless you. Have you ever tried to like get in there and like be like, you know, I see both sides and like, bam, you're done. Like all of a sudden, what all you did was create a common enemy for those two groups because now they're both going to turn on you. That's what happens. Like I used to get involved on, on Facebook. I used to think that I could have rational conversations. I used to think and act like a child and then I grew up and give away childish ways. Like it just doesn't work. Listen, like if, if, if that time ever existed to be able to have those kinds of conversations on social media, it has long since passed. Virtually every post made on social media that is not about what my cat did this morning is made with a mob mentality. It's sensationalistic, fear-mongering, reductionist of the other viewpoint, painting them as a straw man or half-truth. The people who write the articles that are the fuel and, and the, the, the kindling to toss out there, those people, they've only written these things just to get you to click on it and to pass it along. And every click and pass gets them more money. Just like the idol makers in this passage, what they're really doing is using you to make money. They don't actually care about the thing they say they care about. They care about working people into frenzy and a confusion to meet their own needs. But what can you do? So what do we do in this culture? Well, one thing that we see in Scripture that we can do is we can calm down your own mob. It should be noted, the only way the mob is reasoned with at all is when one of their own calms them down. The town clerk quiets them down and says, hey, listen, nobody's saying these things that you're saying, and if you keep going in this, you're actually going to find yourself in real trouble. So let's just make sure we deal with this in the right way. Look, it doesn't always work, but I do think that one of the ways that we as a church can benefit and can bring some peace and healing in our country is to gently try to quiet down the mobs who would look at us and say, hey, you're one of us. Trust me, I know this gets really weird, and you've got to just hang with me in this. But imagine that the next time on a Facebook feed, someone kind of, pushing that mob mentality, but it's about something that you care about. It's something that you actually agree with in, in, a, in a vacuum. Like you agree with that thing that they're putting out there, but you also see, man, this is harsh. This is not kind. This is not really rational. Like this is just kind of fear-mongering. Like maybe in that time you, you just kind of say, hey, I, I agree in principle with your stance. Like I understand what you're concerned about. I'm also concerned about that thing, but I just want us to, like, I want us to kind of take the higher road here. I want to, like, let's, let's make sure that the things that we're posting are, are accurate and not inflammatory. Or maybe, like, there's better arguments for this position than, than that. And, like, hey, how about we're kind when we share these things? 
So that's one thing that we can do. Help your brothers and sisters who are getting swept up in the mob to just pull them back from the ledge and say, hey, we can trust that Jesus is the way. We can speak to this. We can encourage our culture towards this, but let's do it in a way that is honoring to Christ. Second thing you can do is you can throw out a lifeline. Like sometimes we do engage with with mobs that are against us. But there's a difference between what happens here and what happens in Athens in Acts 17, where Paul debates and he lays out the case for Christ. His aim is not to convince the mob or those who are hardened to the gospel, but to toss out a lifeline to those who might be saved. So one of the ways that we can engage is to kind of gently, I've been in situations where it's me and then a bunch of people yelling angry things at me. I know this is shocking to you that I would ever find myself in a situation where this is happening. And when I'm at my best, and I can tell you there have been many times where I'm not at my best, but when I'm at my best, when Christ is most obvious in me, then my response is calm, and what I'm doing is just throwing out the good news, hoping that maybe in the sea of people, someone will hear it. Someone will have ears to hear, and the Holy Spirit will grab a hold of them, and it is a lifeline out to them to pull them out, not a way of defeating the whole mob. Right now, there's the hurricane you know, going on in, in Florida and along the coast, and they have these rescue efforts. Right? And when they go out on these search and rescue missions in these floodwaters, their goal is not to defeat the flood. Their goal is to find people who might be saved and to rescue them. Part of the way we deal with this is to just say, I I know I'm not defeating a mob. That's not my aim. My aim is I want to speak truth and love and grace and hope that someone would respond. And so my demeanor should exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, knowing that the gospel is disruptive and will be offensive, but the people of God are not. And consistently we see this in Acts where the people are kind and gracious and loving and peaceful and generous even in the face of the mob. The last one I'll just mention is that we can capitalize on cultural shifts. And this is what I mean. So this is for all the people who are like, yeah, but shouldn't we be involved politically? Yes. And this is how. We should be involved politically but we should always be reminded that change in the culture happens inside out first and then top down. Laws change in response to cultural shifts. Culture does not shift in response to laws. I'm going to say that again in case you think I misspoke. Laws change in response to cultural shifts. Culture does not shift in response to laws. If you, need, um, if you need an example of this, I'm just going to encourage you, here's a little homework. Do some research on your own. Look at the difference between what happened in the wake of prohibition versus what happened after the first great awakening in the American colonies. And what changed. And not only that, what happened in England after the first great awakening. When there's spiritual revival and people change from the inside out, then all of a sudden laws change because people have changed. William Wilberforce is one of the greatest examples we have of someone who brilliantly used this, who understood that people have to experience this revival. And once he saw the revival, he came in and masterfully used the political systems of his day to enact just laws. That's what I want for our country. I want us to be so committed to revival and saying, like, we know that the gospel is our only hope. And as we see people change, and as people are changed from the inside out and they're pursuing Jesus, then we say, okay, then let's create just laws around this that benefit our neighbor and are a blessing to our world. It will never happen the other way. So, this brings us back to the good news that the gospel will disrupt culture in the most beautiful of ways if we trust that Jesus is the way. When we abandon the gospel, when we abandon the way of Jesus, we abandon our first love, we abandon our king, and we actually doom our country and our neighbors and our communities to destruction. When we leave our post 
of loving God and loving our neighbor right where we're planted, when we leave that post and we think that there are more important battles to be fought on social media or getting into a war between mobs, then we abandon our king. Another phrase that we love to use about the kingdom is that small things become big things. Small acts of faithfulness. If you want our culture to shift, the best thing that you can do today is pursue Jesus with your whole heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Bear the fruit of the Spirit and tell people about the coming kingdom and this great king. Imagine if every Christian did that starting today. Just think about this. Still today, everyone's talking about the the decline of Christianity in America. Still today, 63% of our country self-identifies as Christian. Now, you and I know there's different definitions of that, and there are many of those people that we may not say, like, ah, that's not actually biblical Christianity. But 63% of the people, when asked, say, I'm a Christian. So just imagine, that's 210 million people. Imagine if they started doing this, just following Jesus. Just imagine. Imagine they stopped trying to appease their own mob. They stopped trying to fight the other mob. And they just followed Jesus, heart, soul, and mind. Imagine that they turned the other cheek. Imagine they loved their enemies. Imagine they prayed for those who persecuted them. Imagine they cared for the outcast and the refugee and the oppressed. Imagine they stopped buying into propaganda and stopped letting the mob rulers manipulate them into dishonoring God. That's 63% of our population. Just imagine if that happened. Let's be really clear. If I didn't make it clear before, whatever side you think there is in our culture, it is also not the gospel. That mob mentality exists everywhere. What would probably arise, at least politically, would be another political party that didn't look like either of our main parties. But every time anybody mentions that, guess what happens? Well, that's just not possible. I have to choose one of my mistresses. there would be a total revolution and revival started by nothing more than God's people pursuing Jesus and living out the kingdom. And you might say, that's naive. That's too slow. Or we tried that and it didn't work and now we need to fight fire with fire. Just imagine for a second the culture that Jesus walked into. Do you think that the culture that Jesus walked into was more moral than our culture today? Do you think it was holier? People were being crucified. Sick people were tossed out of communities. Orphans were garbage. Women were treated as property. Widows were abandoned and left for dead. Do you think that Jesus was okay with any of that? Do you think he was apathetic toward their suffering? If that's not the case, then why did he not lead big marches on Rome to overhaul all the social systems? He did. He brought the kingdom of God. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as people became citizens of that kingdom and followed him, they started caring for the widows and the orphans. They cared for the sick. And as those people were transformed, so were their churches, and so were the communities around them, even to the point where idol manufacturers went out of business. Secular governments tried to start competing with them, trying to defeat their faith by mimicking what they were doing, by by caring for their own widows and orphans. And what did that lead to? Societies who believe they have a responsibility to care for the poor and for the sick and the lame. Societies that believed all children were worthy of being educated, all life being protected. That all happened 
from the coming of the kingdom and the transforming of these communities. All right. I do, I want to show you one thing here and then we're going to be done. But I just spent over a week with the Ethiopian Refugee Church in South Africa. And they have a hard life. Uh, Ethiopian refugees there fled economic distress, political oppression, and civil war to come to South Africa, hoping to send money back to their families. Some of them were separated from their families for years. I met one pastor who had been separated from his wife and his children for six years. And he's ministering and sharing the gospel while he grieves and prays that God would bring, make a way. They have to pay exorbitant fees to the government to even get them to be able to come. And on top of all that, they're, they're dealing with more persecution because people locally in South Africa look at them as immigrants and unwanted and refugees that are unwanted. And so they're seen as people who are going to steal their jobs. And so they've started um, seeing violence against the Ethiopian community. And on top of that, they're dealing with the same cultural issues that we are dealing with here in the church. South Africa is heavily influenced by Western secular humanism. And so all the things that we deal with out in our schools and our communities and everything, they're also dealing with. And what has their response been? Here's some of the pastors and the leaders. Here's their response. They don't worry about any of those things. They grieve over them. They pray that God would make a way. But instead... What they've done is they've made the best living they can by opening up little shops and selling things that they make. And they start giving their money, starting churches. And for one church, one church was planted in 15 years ago. In the last 15 years, through that one church and through a population of refugees who have no status, no power, no money, no influence, and are persecuted on a daily basis, do you know how many churches they've started in the last 15 years? 92 in South Africa. Also, they've sent missionaries back to their homeland in Ethiopia who have gotten back to Ethiopia. They started 35 more churches there. And they've started 27 in other countries in Africa. They've sent missionaries to other countries in Africa and started 27 churches. Oh yeah, and one in Atlanta. hundred and fifty some churches how by believing the gospel is the most important thing that the way of Jesus is worthy here is um, here's a picture of our um, translator that's Silas with me um, so Silas and I were there and this is our uh, um, translator his name is King and I watched him He's one of those stories of being separated. He's been separated from his fiance, waiting to marry her, trying to bring her to South Africa to be able to marry her. He's been waiting for 13 years. 13 years. And I watched him as he's been separated and he grieves over that because of unjust government systems. I watched him continue to serve and love the people of South Africa. So here, um, we came up with a nickname for him. Uh, his name is King. And so we all thought he looked like the Fresh Prince. <laughs> all right? So, so his nickname that, that I, I um, got someone to help me translate was Tanesh Adis Negus, which literally translated means fresh little king. Um, so so that's, that's who he was. He just full of joy. And I watched him as he continued to love people and share the gospel and serve and love the people of South Africa who were oppressing him. And I saw him pull up to toll booths and into stores. And I noticed he wasn't speaking English. And I started to learn he was not speaking, speaking Amharic, which is Ethiopian language. He's speaking other languages. And I asked him, like, what are you speaking? And he said, oh, I recognize that they, they speak Zulu, so I was speaking Zulu. They speak Swahili, so I was speaking Swahili. I said, how many languages do you know? He's like, I don't know. A bunch. Why does he do that? Because he wants to identify with them and love them. He wants to 
not speak to them. He could speak to them in Afrikaans, which is the language there, but a lot of people in South Africa don't want to speak that. They want to speak their tribal language, and so he meets them where they are, and he speaks that, which is an incredible display of love and service to a people that is oppressing him. He's breaking down those walls of prejudice aimed at him, and I listened to him as he continually said, I trust God's plan. I trust his way. God's way is the king. And this king brings a kingdom. And the gospel is the good news that this kingdom has come and that the king is returning. And that news is disruptive in the most beautiful of ways. Let's pray. Father, let us trust you more. Let us believe you when you say that your kingdom, that you will make all things right, that you will reconcile all things, and that truly the greatest commandment is that we would love you and pursue you with our whole heart, soul, and mind, that we would not be swayed by other suitors, by other temptations, that we would not take refuge in any of the mobs that the world has to offer, but that we would take refuge in you, that we would trust in you, And Jesus, that we would believe that you are the way and the truth and the life. Lord, help us to be faithful in the small things. Help us to believe that small acts of faithfulness will yield big fruit. Help us to believe that you will bring about all that you want to bring about through us if we faithfully man our posts. If we declare the good news of the kingdom. And we love our enemies. And we speak hope and life and truth and grace wherever we go. And we would trust in you and your ways. And God, we do pray in our culture that that would bring about revival and that you would save people radically and change us from the inside out. And let us be a city on a hill of transformed people that would point to your goodness and to your glory and let the world respond around us. God, we pray for the broken things in our culture and we pray, God, that you would do your work and that you would keep us faithful, that we would see these things change, but that we would see them change from the inside out. so that they may bear generational fruit. It would be a blessing on our children and on our children's children, generation after generation. We pray that you would do this, because only you can do this. In the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.